Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace. It is March the 19th, 2020, a month which I would imagine every single podcast listener is going to remember because we are living in crazy times and we're in the middle of the global coronavirus pandemic. I hope that you are all safe and well and heeding any advice that you're getting from the health officials from whatever country you're joining this show from. But I promise that that is the only mention of coronavirus you're going to hear in this show today, because you're going to be getting plenty of that in everything that you read and listen and listen to in whatever news outlets or social media platforms uh, you're looking at. It's absolutely everywhere, but not on this podcast. I want this to be a little capsule of escape for you. But before I get into the show, a massive thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. You guys are freaking awesome. You help make this show possible. And two weeks ago, as we do on every show, I gave you the opportunity to win a copy of Modern Huntsman, who are our supporters on this show. And uh, for the first time, we've never done this as the competition before, but we were giving it to our Patreon supporters. So I randomly picked someone who supports the podcast either previous to the last show or has joined in the last two weeks. I ran my finger down the list and I ended up on Lucy Clark. So congratulations, Lucy. You are the winner. Contact us either through Patreon or email podcast at paceproductionsuk.com and I will get a copy of either volume three or four out to you. Or if you want to wait a little bit, we could send you volume five because volume five is currently available for pre-order. So if you want to make sure that you get your hands on the first copies, head over to either the Modern Huntsman website or thepacebrothers.com if you're UK, Europe, rest of the world, and you can pre-order volume five. And you probably have a lot of time on your hands right now. If you don't have volume three or four, we have them sitting in the warehouse ready to ship out. So head over to thepacebrothers.com and we can get you a volume three or four out for reading material in this time when you're locked down in your house. Of course, we're going to give you the opportunity to win another copy for this show. And I thought we'd make it very simple. All we want is for you to share this podcast with a friend um, so that I can track it. I'd like it to be some sort of social media post. So however you do it, however you share it, just tag us so that we can see it. And all the people who um, share this podcast on social, any social platform, in the next uh, two weeks will be in with a shout of winning a copy of Volume 3 or 4, Modern Huntsman. I will randomly select the winner. I just had a thought. If you don't use social media, and I don't blame you for not wanting to be on social media right now, uh, then just stick us on an email with a friend. I'll accept that. That's fine. Email entries are all good. Stick us on an email with a friend and say, hey, go check out this podcast because it is you, the great people who listen to this show, uh, who really make it possible. If no one was listening, I don't think we would make the show anymore. A little bit of news before we really get into it. The Northern Shooting Show, which I've been mentioning in the intro to the podcast the last few weeks, has moved its dates. 
rather unsurprisingly, with everything that's going on. It was previously going to be held in May. Now it's going to be held on the 28th to 29th of August 2020. So still this year, just not in May, in August. So we will see you not in May, in August this year. If you want to read about the event, just go and Google the Northern Shooting Show. All of the information's there. Uh, your tickets, if you already had them for May, will be obviously now be valid for August. Uh, if you have any questions, then you can contact the team via the website. So for this show, I drove about three hours north from where I live to meet up with Dr. Lindsay Seafright, primarily to talk about the Deer Working Group review in Scotland and how management of this amazing resource that we have is going to change. But we dug into a whole host of other topics as well, including grouse populations and cycles, best practice guidance, woodland restoration, and the climate emergency, and how we need to really think more about a landscape-scale approach when it comes to management. It was a fascinating discussion. I've known Lindsay for a couple of years. We've worked together on one or two small projects. I always learn a lot when I'm talking to her. So I hope that you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it. Four seasons in one day drive up today <laughs> through snow, rain, sleet, and storm a little bit of Dennis, sun. Storm Dennis, yeah. Are we still in the middle of Storm Dennis? I think he's maybe passed. But just. <laughs> Dennis is gone, okay. <laughs> Dennis is gone. Um, uh, we've got a lot to cover today, uh, yeah. but I'm going to start here because um, we, I think I first met you probably about 10, you can correct me if, I, if I'm wrong with this, probably about 10 years ago at a best practice day in Glen Feshie. Oh, wow. Uh, no, maybe not Glen Feshy? Was it, maybe it was a different Glen. Oh, okay. It was, it was definitely a best practice day. Yeah. I was there with the college. Oh, wasn't it Carrer? Yes, it was. Yeah, Carrer. That mm. was amazing. That was about 10 years ago, was it? Yeah, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Probably even longer, actually. Yeah, and I, I don't think it. we talked or anything, but you were giving, you were giving a talk. <laughs> I was so scared that day. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was great from what I remember. It was, uh, there was everything from uh, deer surveys to... Um, actual like practical demonstrations, yeah. laddering. It was a full day. Yeah, that that was the first one we ever did. Oh, was it? So, yeah, at Carrer. Yeah, okay. and it was, it was. Um, so you didn't even know I was there, did you? No, <laughs> there was just a sea of. Actually, it was quite funny because it it came after a really difficult time in the the whole sort of deer sector, and um, the agency. I just joined the deer commission at the time, and so I'd missed the whole Glen Feshy thing. Oh, that's um, why I was thinking yes, Glenfeshie. Well, we thinking should probably that. elaborate. Yeah. We, we can come back to it, but yeah, probably okay. just explain Glenfeshie because at the time it was, it made like every paper. Oh, absolutely. It was the first time that um, the government agency, which is in charge of deer in Scotland, had really um, basically used the deer legislation. And it was in an emergency situation that deer were about to cause damage to this pine wood. And um there was the use of helicopters to deploy um, stalkers onto the ground. And and I think it was the first time, A, that the regulation had really been used. And then the use of helicopters got people very excited. So we're not allowed to shoot from helicopters, but helicopters were used to deploy people to the site and to bring carcasses back. And I think the reason it was so emotive was that I think people felt that that was the beginning of the end you know, for deer management, traditional deer management. Because this was Scotland. like government control of a deer Absolutely, population. Absolutely, yeah. So that caused a huge um, furore at the time. Um, the sort of more traditional 
hunters, stalkers were, I think, as I say, possibly worried that this was going to fundamentally change, you know, that they were going to be losing their jobs because this is how deer management would be carried out in the future. So it created, I wasn't there, I, I joined the Deer Commission just shortly afterwards, but the aftermath was pretty huge. And and at the time, the job that I was brought in to do um, was to develop the best practice guidance series. And that relied on a whole bunch of people from the sector. So all the different organisations who were involved in deer management, basically coming together and agreeing how to do things. And this just sort of put a bit of a rocket in all of that. But in some way, I think there's always got to be good that comes out of something. And I think what happened was that having gone through that process, it really forced people to look at deer management and then to sort of ask questions about whether or not best practice really was going to continue. There was lots of people threatening to sort of back out of the process. And I think people realised there was far too much to lose from that. So it, in a way, possibly consolidated people again to say, no, this is too valuable to lose. We must keep going. Um, but yeah, so in parallel to developing the guides, we Which were... Which is considerable because I have it sitting yeah, in my office absolutely. at home. It's like an entire binder. Oh, that's proper blood, sweat and tears. <laughs> Five years of my life, but um, <laughs> not just mine. I was working with a whole raft of people um, to develop it, which was an amazing experience. Um, but we were also, to develop the guides, we realised that, you know, there's a hundred ways to, to do something. And if you asked a hundred stalkers how they do a certain task in the larder or whatever, you'd come up with a hundred different different ways of doing something. So it was really about um, trying to consolidate that. And we wanted, it was really important that we had feedback from the people on the ground to help develop the process. So this was um, a series of guides being developed sort of by stalkers for stalkers, you know, for the industry. And so the power of the whole process was us going out with the draft guides and saying, what do you think? Tell us. And getting you know, feedback. And getting feedback yeah. is so important. Yeah. So what kind of, what, what spectrum of activities was this covering? Because I, I, so I know, for example, apart from the fact I have flicked through um, pretty much all of it, um, but some time ago, was it fast forward time now, you and I worked on some best practice guide films yes, for Habitat. for Habitat Habitism. monitoring, yeah. yeah. They cover the whole spectrum. So it's, it's really from, from the hill to plate point of view, it's the um, looking at the ecology, looking at deer management planning, just every element that, that you can think of. Um, the lardering, shooting, shot placement, all of these things. Um, and the idea was to produce these guides which are really usable. You know, they're not, they're, they're not text heavy. We use a lot of diagrams and things like that. So it was trying to produce something that was concise, simple to use, that, as I say, the people on the ground could really buy into. Um, so that was the ethos of it. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so we had to, 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 to ground truth all of these different elements. So yeah, one of my first um, things that I got sent to do in my job was to go on a butchery course, which oh, really? was amazing. Yeah. And I'd, I'd just spent a lot of years being quite academic um, in one way or another. And so to be sent on this course was just the best thing ever. And just that practically. Because essentially that's like, the, that's the output of all this oh, best practice work is 
venison into the food chain. Absolutely, absolutely. And so to understand, it's almost like starting with the end in mind and working your way back. So just having the skills and the knowledge to be able to do that. And that's, you know, something that I, I take with me today, which is, is fantastic to have developed those skills. But, but so there was a whole raft of things and we just wanted to get people's feedback from an early stage to make sure that the guides worked and they made sense. So part of that was running these demonstration events where the idea was we would set up lots of different stations. There would be shooting, there would be, um, there would be things on, you know, running population models. There would be habitat monitoring, which you talked about. Um, and one of the other things that we were doing was following Glanfeshi, there was this backlash against the use of, for example, helicopters. And we use them um, quite a lot, potentially to count deer. Yeah. In a very, yeah. very effective and, and way. do today. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So there was a lot of... Um, I guess, misconception about the way that we were using them to count and the welfare implications. And that was one of the guides that we developed. So we felt at that time it was really important to just take people up and show them what we were doing, show them the way that the deer were reacting to the helicopter and things like that. So again, it was another opportunity, not just for us to, it was never about telling people what to do. It was about saying, what do you think? And building that into the process. Working so, with the people on the ground and the local absolutely. communities who live with the animals that they're managing. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think that was the real strength in developing that because it, you know, I say that, you know, I, I basically pulled it together, but I was working with a huge amount of people. You know, every topic had a specialist group that we would work with and we would take it out. So the colleges, for example, were a great sounding board, particularly for things like habitat monitoring. Okay, yeah. You know, I know they just all want to go and you know learn and shoot and things, but I think bringing it back to that understanding why you're shooting, you know, and and being able to look at the habitat and relate that to the quality of your deer and and making those links. So we took these best practice guides to the colleges, and I was thinking, oh, this is going to be pretty dull for them. <laughs> But they were, you know... It's the, the one of the main things I remember from the year really? that I spent at the college. Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah, it is. <laughs> so I was going funny. to the best practice event, yeah. yeah. But, you know, again, just taking taking these guides out and saying, this has got to work for you. And people just got it. And, and I think maybe up until that point, there had been a lot of... Um, mystery surrounding habitat monitoring. It's all a dark art. And when you actually take people out and, and show them, I'm able to demonstrate that in the ground hands-on way. It's like you can do it too. You can do it too. And people come and go, yeah, I can do that, mm. you know. And that for me is what it's all about, is just empowering the people on the ground, giving them skills and the knowledge to make the decisions, be the decision makers, and to manage their populations in a sustainable way. So it's bringing all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together. It's like across the spectrum from, like you say, the ecology to the socio-economic impacts. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we're going to talk much more about deer because uh, it's very topical right now. But <laughs> I want to just pause, rewind a bit, because uh, although we'd never met until that point, uh, the best practice day, uh, you actually grew up basically the same place that I grew up. Yeah. Um, so was. you're from Glenesk originally. I am. Which I look upon <laughs> from my office window every day that I'm in the office. Oh, I'm biased, but it's very beautiful. Um, yes, I did. I grew up on, on an estate and it was very remote. I'm probably a bit like yourself. I was completely feral as a child. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> yeah, I was just... When I think about it now, um, the fact that it, you know... I wasn't even at high school, so you're like eight, nine years old. I'd just disappear all summer holidays yeah. fishing on the river where my folks are like, yeah, okay, he's on the river. But I mean, where? 
I, do, I just don't know if people do that anymore. I, I mean, anything know. could have Abs- happened. Absolutely. I was thinking about that the other day, actually. Yeah, we just used to disappear in the morning, and yeah. I'm sure. So Mum we'll says she does dark. know where we were, but yeah, yeah, exactly. We could have been anywhere on the estate, but... Um, yeah, while you were out fishing, you see, this is, I was, I was the geeky one because I was at a workshop recently and someone was um, talking about, you know, what's your earliest memory? What really got you inspired and things? And what was your early memory linking to your work? And, and I remember walking around the estate with my little drawing pad and my crayons and I just, I wanted to map it all. I wanted to, <laughs> I told you, it's so geeky. And I just wanted to understand how it all worked and, and the different habitats. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I just felt I had to do it. Yeah. And and that really kind of summed up my childhood. I was just so curious about everything. My poor father. And your future by the sound of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what I do now in yeah. a funny sort of way. And um, yeah, my, my father, every opportunity just going out, my father was a, a stalker hunter on the on the ground and say just every opportunity to be out and and learning and and just being absorbed in every element of estate management so right the way through you know that that whole circle of of life so I remember you know in the winter time at that time it was one year we had a pretty uh, wild winter and we couldn't get the Land Rovers up to where we would normally feed feed the deer so we took um, the ponies up with these panniers that you would normally take the lunches out to yeah, yeah. with the with the horses and Wicker going out, to, yeah, yeah, it was amazing and going out and feeding the deer and and then you'd just be counting the, the sort of months until the stalking season and you got to go out and I remember taking the pony out when I was twelve years old. You know, it's a huge responsibility thinking yeah, back it is. to it, it now. Really is, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you know, and again, it's just having that that opportunity just to be involved. Um, in every aspect so of the estate. So that's how you were immersed. I think, totally. so well, yeah, when, when you were doing that and I was fishing the rivers, I just wanted to understand the mind of a fish, right. which is what <laughs> gave me the, an interest in you know, the aquatic ecosystems, Yeah. Uh, which I, I never pursued in any kind of academic form, but I've read a lot and been fascinated about, uh, about it ever since. Yeah. Um, so it's funny how these little childhood experiences sit there and very often sort of shape the paths that you take. Definitely. I just wanted to understand how everything worked. I wasn't really interested in the shooting side at that point. It was more about, I would just sit and watch deer for hours. Mm. Well, it's a great place to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And as I say, just wanted to understand how it all fitted together, how it worked. And, And I think, I suppose looking back, the difficult thing was at that time, we didn't have access to the internet. It wasn't even... Wasn't even they've, only just got, even they've only just got internet going ask now. <laughs> well, there's none of that. And um, so basically, you know, you, you didn't realise that you could actually make a career out of the things that you were passionate about. And so I suppose when you did all those crazy careers things at school, you had to tick all the boxes. They sucked. And, oh, didn't they? <laughs> I don't think there was any... I wonder if... I'd love to know, for anybody who listens to the podcast, if they ever went to like a careers day and the careers advisor got it right for you. Oh, I'd love to know that too. Because I, I would be very surprised yeah. if anybody writes in and says, yeah, they definitely got it right for me. Well, they didn't even have half the boxes that I wanted to tick in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think the closest you could get at that time was to be a vet, I think, if you were interested in animals and animals yeah yeah vets that ticks the box (laughs) yeah so I suppose that took me on one path um and it wasn't really until I got to university took a completely wrong course because I eventually didn't become a vet um, so what did you what did you originally study I studied economics 
I just high five me too. Did you? Why did I do that? I just still to this day. I mean, I do know. I I studied economics because I had this crazy notion in my head that because I left school a year early. So when I left high school, I was sixteen and I went to university. Yeah. And I had this crazy notion like I'll study economics, I'll go to the city, I'll make a lot of money, (gasps) and I'll retire at thirty and buy an estate. Oh no way! This is exactly my thought process. Because all I wanted to do was be absorbed in that world and look after it. And I thought, well, if I can if I can own a little piece of it, then I can I can do that. So I can get in, get out, and then I realized that I was just losing my freaking mind. I mean, so I mean, I, I did go and eventually. But I'm not going to retell the story now. But I, yeah, I did um, with a, a gap in between. I did eventually do that. Like I, I, I got the job. I became a risk analyst for the biggest investment um, bank in the world, and worked in London, worked yeah. in New Delhi and stuff. But I, I lasted three years, and I thought I, I don't know how anybody can do this. Because even, I mean, a lot of the guys, the guys who are left, who I started with, you know, a lot of those guys are doing exactly what I wanted to do as a 16-year-old, which actually all I really want to do is go hunting and fishing. But my, my game plan, they're all fund managers now. So they're, they, they're doing it. They, they did what I was intending to do, but I couldn't hack it. Like three years, I was out. That's well, you've lasted three years longer than me. I did, I made it to second year <laughs> oh, right, at university. Okay. <laughs> it was difficult for yeah. me. I did postpone, I took two yeah. years out of economics right. to go and dart elephants in Africa. Oh, well, um, yeah. Because I couldn't, I couldn't take it. So yeah. you, you were two years in and then you decided, I, was two years I can't in, do this anymore. And I just decided, because I, I, that's so spooky because I had exactly the same mentality. If I can't be a vet and do that, then I'm just going to make loads of money. And um, second year, first year was a breeze. Second year, it just, uh, yeah, my heart just wasn't in it at all. Mine wasn't. <laughs> and I was at the point of basically dropping out. And my dear, dear mother said, you know, voice of reason, look, at least just see what you can come up. You've put two years in, see what you can come out with. And, you know, go and do some research in the library. See what might be available to you if you get, you know, don't waste your time, basically. Yeah. So I went into the library and it was the most amazing moment probably of my life because I was walking down this aisle and this booklet was sitting on the shelf and I had a picture of a grouse on the front. I was like, oh, I know what's that, that about? Yeah. <laughs> so I opened up and it was the, the booklet for the MSc in Ecology in Aberdeen. Okay. And I was just flicking through. I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I've always wanted to do. And the biggest light bulb just went off. And from that point... You know, it was about the uplands, it was about grouse, it was about deer, it was about all of these things that I just wanted to know about. And it was really easy after that, you know, and, and, and all... Because you were fascinated by it anyway. It wasn't a grind like no, economics no, no, was. No, like absolutely. every day was a freaking grind for me. Yeah. Doing that. And so yeah. it was easy for me then because I knew then what I had to do. Okay. So I went back and I, I, I had to redo a year, but I went back and did... So you managed to miss your first year out of yeah, yeah, because I'd been the science faculty. So they just said, well, you know, you, you get enough credits from that. So I just was launched in second year of an environmental biology course, but I loved it. And from that point, I say it was really easy. So... I got my degree, and that was great. And, and during my degree, I um, had the opportunity to do an honours project um, up at the Institute of Terrestrial Ecology up at Bankery. Okay. I didn't and know that, there was an Institute of Terrestrial oh, well, Ecology. Well, that's what it's called. Oh, it what was, was it CEH. It used to be, well, it was CEH Bankery, and it unfortunately closed down. Oh. Um, it was like the northern outpost of, of the centres, and all the great sort of legends were there at the time. Brian Staines was involved with deer, and yeah amazing people and so I I organized to do my honors project at Mar Lodge which was fantastic and for me an it was icon in deer management Mar Lodge yeah. absolutely so basically my project was just you know sitting for two months with my little Land Rover looking at 
deer behaviour at feeding sites and I was being mentored by um, a scientist from Austria, Caroline Schmidt, who was just at the time such a source of inspiration to me. Um, and I just thought, this is it, this is absolutely what I want to do, you know, just having the opportunity to to be immersed in that kind of research world and things for a while. So, yeah, it was... It was so where did you go from from finishing your finish? So that was just an undergrad. It was just an undergrad, yeah. and then I took some time out and went to the Scottish Deer Centre. I say just an undergrad, but like well, it's still yeah, an achievement. I yeah. I, <laughs> um, I had toyed so, with so you say Scottish Deer Centre. Yeah, Is that over by Cooper. Yes, Cooper. Right, yeah, yeah. and basically there are seven species of deer there. It's really just it's a it's a farm. What's the but seventh? It's an education. The Peardavid. Yeah, Peardavid, and we had access deer, Chital. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, what 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 species that's here in the UK was missing then? Um, let me think. We had red roe, cicafalo. We Chinese? had we had munchak, but no Chinese. But no Chinese. Okay. Yeah, and that was a fantastic opportunity just to basically it was an education centre. Mm-hmm. So we used to take people on tours around the deer park, but we used that platform to talk about management, talk about management in the wild. Um, the need for management, need for control, um, and just just being aware of of that important link between getting young people involved in nature and understanding nature. And okay, it was on a farm and it was slightly artificial, but just seeing how children, in particular, just so like sponges to want to learn, hmm. and having that opportunity to interact with nature was yeah fantastic because it gives them something something tangible something that they can see in front of them in 3d living breathing yes exactly they can smell it there's yeah. a big difference between that and showing it in a, in a book yeah you know, in this sort of one-dimensional platform absolutely and i say just having that opportunity to talk about management and wider things as well mm. conservation and all of these things was so, so what does that center actually set up for is it, is it as an edu- education it platform or was, was it actually for for, for venison it was originally as a deer farm okay. and then it was bought over by a slightly more commercial organisation who had a whole series of shops and, you know, it was an attraction to get people to come buy things. But, you know, we in the park were very much about sort of promoting the conservation side and the education side. So, mm. yeah. So we saw a lot of visitors through and I say it was just a, a good opportunity to A great to learning platform people. as well. Yeah. Yeah. But just seeing how you know, even... I remember one group of boys and I guess they had behavioural needs and we were told by their carers that they probably didn't have a lot of attention span. So, you know, we would keep it short and sweet and we would we would go around quite quickly. And I just remember coming up and it never happened because the deer become habituated to people being there at certain times. So, for example, the hinds would calve out with those hours in early morning or late evening. And so it was very rare that you ever got to see that. Anyway, th- we were on this tour and I just remember seeing this hind, her, her waters had just broken. And so I was explaining to these guys and I was saying that this, this, this is pretty amazing because you don't normally see this. And, you know, we don't quite know what's going to happen. Now it could take, you know, it could take a few minutes, it could take hours, but do you want to stay and watch and see what happens? And they were absolutely transfixed. And we stood there, someone got sent in to get some umbrellas and we stood there just for hours watching and waiting to see. And, oh, amazing. And, you know, you just think 
then they possibly never have that opportunity to mm. have that engagement with nature. And yeah, because to see that in the wild is very rare. Yes, in the yeah. wild, absolutely. even for people who spend yes. a lot of time out there, exactly. it's pretty rare that you actually see that. Yeah. yeah. So. Oh, fantastic! So, where did you move on from there? So from there, so was that two years you spent there? Uh, three years, I think. Um, I got the most amazing opportunity. I was involved quite heavily with the British Deer Society at the time, which is the welfare organisation, and um, I was doing a lot at regional level. And it was just through a random sort of chance conversation with someone at possibly an event, and they were asking me what my aspirations were. And and at that time, I had a real hunkering to go to New Zealand. I wanted to, to go out and learn more about what was happening there. And they said to me, have you heard of the Winston Churchill Travel Fellowships? And I have not. Does it still exist? Yeah, it does. Huh. Yeah, absolutely. And um, these are just fantastic opportunities from people of every walk of life. You don't need to be an academic. It's for everybody to have the opportunity to go somewhere else, um, somewhere abroad, and to basically pursue a topic of your of your choice and to use it in a way that helps expand your own knowledge but but allows you to bring something back to this country to, to help whatever profession you might be in or whatever line of work and I had the f fortune just to have a chat with this chap at one of these meetings and he said you should really apply um be a perfect opportunity for you so he said it might take a while you know, going through the application process, but but definitely apply. So I looked and just so happened there was a category that year about animal welfare. So I applied to do um, a project on, on animal welfare and looking how that linked to national parks, because at that time, I think we were just developing our first national parks in Scotland. Oh, so the Cairngorms National yeah, Park didn't exist absolutely. then? absolutely. Yep. So they were just developing those. And I was just fascinated to see how um, how New Zealand had sort of adapted their national parks or were managing wildlife in those national parks so I applied and amazingly I got the opportunity to go and that was just a complete life changer for me because it was the first time that I'd really traveled abroad and certainly on my own and just the breadth of people that it opened doors to was just fantastic and whether it's people in the Department of Conservation, I got to meet with hunters, people who were involved in research in New Zealand, um, just a whole raft of, of a real broad spectrum of really inspirational people. So aside from that just being an amazing opportunity anyway, it, I really did come back and thinking, yeah, I need to, there's something more that I want to do. And so I think that probably inspired me to want to go on and do a PhD. And an opportunity came up um, at the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology back up in Bankery and it was actually in red grouse so it was slightly off piste from my usual interest in deer but I thought that's probably a good thing for my career just to have Gives another you a bit more interest depth, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so I spent um four years up at this the center I say for ecology and hydrology up at Bankery and it was amazing again just access to really inspiring people so some complete legends of of Upland research, so people like Bob Moss and Adam Watson and all of these people, oh, yes. and yeah. Steve Redpath and my supervisor, and all names. If you read any papers about Upland yeah. ecology and management, I think all of their names, uh, are pretty oh, much all absolutely. of them, absolutely, yeah. yeah, or certainly in the references, yeah. yeah. And again, just the the breadth and diversity of projects, but because it's such a small research institute, you 
you've access to all this knowledge and, and the research and understanding what's going on out with your own kind of discipline. So that that was just amazing. Again, a lot of blood, sweat and tears going into that. So what was your... I want to ask you about the grouse stuff. I'll tell you what, I'm going to, I want to pick up on what you were doing with grouse there. Yeah. But just before it gets too far out of my mind, back in New Zealand, what were you actually studying there? Because I spent a little bit of time there um, two years ago. And it's, it's a very different mindset, a different system we have there. They've got a lot more public land. They've got, largely speaking, just um, invasive non-native species there. Um, and in fact, I think that some of the deer came from Invermark, exactly. where you grew up. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that was part of the fascination. I wanted to look to see how they were managing their wildlife in, in the national park context. Okay. But obviously, it, it is a different context here because deer are not native. And... Um, it was just basically looking at, at the animal welfare side of that. So, you know, there's all the, the sort of slightly controversial maybe use of 1080. Yep. And at that time, they were developing probably what are now some of the most progressive animal welfare um, legislation probably in the world at that time. So it was just really looking at all those different aspects. Um, how do you manage these invasive populations? What are the animal welfare implications of that, of using things like 1080, some of the other um, methods that they were using as well? But it allowed me an insight into, I suppose, just understanding how the whole deer thing really evolved there. And um, right from way back when, from when the first deer were introduced, how they were managed that boom Because they were introduced for sporting purposes, weren't they? I think that's right, yeah. And of course, as someone in New Zealand put it to me, you know, the the vegetation there has, has evolved without really major herbivores. So the way they put it to me was that deer are not eating sort of meat and potatoes every night. It's 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 pudding. <laughs> it's, it's you know, everything and, and seems so, to thrive there. Yeah, yeah. And so you suddenly got yeah, these deer thriving and, and suddenly expanding hugely and then all the the different points in time where, you know, the department would have been trying to manage those. Yeah, um, bring populations back down. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, the introduction of the whole deer farming sector, again, was a bit of a game changer. And just having an opportunity to speak to some people who were involved at that time, because it was crazy in terms of the value of live deer to the deer farming industry. Mm. And we, I think we still import venison from New Zealand. I think we do, yeah. yeah. So I wanted to dig into this a little bit. Now, the numbers I pulled are a little outdated from 2016, but I saw the same numbers reported in a statement by the Scottish government in 2019, which suggested that we were importing about 900 tonnes of venison from New Zealand every year. In the UK itself, we're producing 3,800 tonnes of venison. And interestingly, 70% of that comes from Scotland. I also wanted to refresh my memory slightly about the introduction of red deer into New Zealand. Now, I was fortunate to spend a bit of time there a few years ago with Joseph Peters from Hard Yards Hunting. If you want to get a real feel for what hunting is like over there and a podcast from the field that I recorded with Joseph, then go back and look out podcast 84. Red deer were introduced to New Zealand in 1861. Some of them came from the Highlands, and specifically Invermark, which I mentioned with Lindsay, which is part of Dalhousie Estate, and I, mean, I can almost see Invermark from my office window. And the rest came from a number of the prestigious, big, uh, well-established English deer parks. That's where a lot of the bigger red deer came from. 
A few years after the first red deer, moose were introduced in 1900, but that population failed. There was a second attempt in 1907 when four bulls and six cows were imported from Canada. It was thought that that population too had died out. Uh, Some had been harvested and hunted over the years, but they hadn't been seen for many, many years until literally a few weeks ago. There was a recent sighting by Ben Young in, in Fjordland. And this has raised the question once again. He saw it from a plane, which is my understanding, but he had previously been a moose guide in Canada, so he does know what he was looking at. He doesn't have any evidence of the sighting because he was unable to take a picture, but he is very confident in what he saw. And there was genetic evidence found in early 2000s to suggest that there still was a population of moose in this area. It is something which I talk about in the podcast uh, with Joseph, and you'll hear from his description how inaccessible this part of the South Island of New Zealand is. So it's possibly not surprising that moose have been living there for some time, and because there's just no people there and very few people go in there, that they haven't been seen. Who knows? Maybe we'll need to get Ben on the podcast and see what he has to say. I know that he did record a podcast with the guys at The Educated Hunter, uh, who have also been on our show. So maybe you can go and check out their most recent podcast and hear what Ben Young had to say about moose in New Zealand. And I think that's probably to balance out the the sort of seasonality of our supply here. Um, Did you... um, did you see any of the, because uh, I think one of the most controversial aspects of it there in terms of like the deer farming, which we banned in the late 70s, I think, or maybe 80s, is velvet harvesting, yeah. which is part and parcel of all of their, pretty much all of their deer, because that's where the, the, the money is. That's like the big money spinner there. Yeah. Did you, did you see much of that? Or? Yeah, I did. I had the opportunity to actually see some... Um, velvet being harvested and it was again at um, a farm so it's done under very strict um, sort of veterinary supervision um, so yeah it's and it, it is a huge part of their industry and it's all linked to the sort of boom and bust when when the prices are high for you know velvet um, I think the, the venison industry yeah, is less and less it helps level it out yes yeah. that's but right it's, it's the same herds that they're using obviously but yes. the velvet's coming from the males yeah, that's right so when the when the market for velvet drops then basically that's when the venison sort of comes onto the market so yeah it was it was an interesting thing to see um it looks <clears> very stressful to me when i've seen it i mean not i mean the guys who do it well do, do it well but yes. it still seems unnecessarily stressful because what's the velvet used for I think there's a misconception that it's used as an aphrodisiac, but I think people use it as a um, a remedy for arthritis. I mm-hmm. think it's sort of powdered down into. Is there any science behind that? Well, amazingly, I had the opportunity to go to a research station where they were looking at <clears throat> the, the sort of properties of velvet. Because if you think about it, you know, it's the fastest growing mammal tissue. Yeah, it's, it's and insane. It's, it's incredible. And so all the sort of um, the minerals and everything that's going into to the growth of the antler um, they were doing tests at the time to look at the implications for things like even the even the sport industry so using venison as, as recovery in terms of your muscles and muscle recovery and things like that um, but yeah m- I think much of the markets um, shipped abroad to places like Korea I think yeah. Um, yeah so I think there is this misconception about an aphrodisiac I think it's used much more widely in sort of 
um, treatments for arthritis because of the incredible properties that the antler has. Yeah, I'm going to have to read a little bit more about yeah. that. To really dig into velvet harvesting, I would need a lot more time. But just to give the very top sort of headline view of it, it was made illegal in the UK in 1988 on the grounds of animal welfare. It is interesting to note that we still import venison from herds in New Zealand, which are used in the velvet industry. So that's... um. It's an interesting conundrum that, that we've banned the practice here, but we're still importing venison that is supported by uh, an industry that we don't allow. Something to think about. When it comes to buying deer velvet, a quick search on Google shows just how accessible it is. I was left with pages and pages to scroll through and buying it in all sorts of forms from powder to tablets. Most of the New Zealand velvet is exported to Asia, and interestingly, the USA, and it made headlines in 2013 when Baltimore Ravens linebacker Ray Lewis courted controversy when he was seen taking a velvet nasal spray to treat a tricep injury that he had. As was reported in National Geographic at the time, the velvet is essentially a growth hormone called insulin-like growth factor 1. Uh, some preliminary research has showed improvements in cartilage damage and repetitive strain injuries and trauma, but there doesn't seem to be anything particularly conclusive from what I could find. I'm happy to be told otherwise, so if there's any podcast listeners out there who know of or have access to really good research which tells us the benefits or indeed the fact that there are no benefits to uh, taking velvet as a supplement i would love to hear from you maybe we can do a short show about it i can get that because again it's just it's living tissue essentially yeah. that you're harvesting so yeah. um but the way that i saw it done you know it, it as you say it's all very controlled and it's done in a way that didn't seem to be distressing but then you know it's use of local anesthetics and things too to numb the area that they're going to take off. But yeah, it does look quite brutal at the time. Yeah, it does but a little bit. So from um, from New Zealand, you came back, your life was changed. Now now we can fast forward to, I want to hear about what you were doing on grouse. Uh, oh, because okay. I mean, where, where you're from and where I live is like heart of grouse country in yeah. Scotland. The That's Angus Glens is, I mean, it's the place really yeah. for, for grouse in Scotland. So the key thing from an ecological point of view, is trying to understand. So grouse populations naturally cycle. You have boom and bust years. And that's usually picked up in bag records. But the population has a tendency to cycle. And it's a big question in sort of ecological terms as to what drives these population cycles. So in other species as well. And at the point that I joined the project, up until that point, there'd been probably about 30 years of, of grouse research going on, but there'd been two camps. And so there'd been my supervisor, who's Pete Hudson, who's based at Stirling. He had one theory about um, these population cycles, and that was about parasites. So it's all about recruitment into the population. So parasites, um, they build up in the population. So it's this trichostrongulus tenuous worm, and it builds up in, in the population. And that's the thing that will limit recruitment. So it's, you know... That at a certain density... Yeah. It, the population crashes. That's right, yeah. yeah. So the females are not producing enough, the brood size goes down, birds will die, so that triggers 
that was Just one theory. Just ex- explain the, the parasite, what it is and, and how it affects the bird. It's just an intestinal worm, basically. And the eggs come out in a certain type of feces that they do in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then the eggs hatch that's out. That's that dark, that, that's like, dark treacle one. looks like color. marmite. Yeah, it's everybody disgusting. Off. <laughs> <laughs> but you see it if you're walking around the hills. Yes. And you often, if you've ever seen this and you're like, what, what earth is that? Because it does look a bit strange. It doesn't look like normal like bird poo. No, that's it's, right. It's, so they, they yeah. do a fibrous poo most of the mm. day. But this is the little poo that they do in the morning. And first thing when they've sort of finished um, sleeping. <laughs> then. But that's where the eggs That's where the out. eggs are, yeah. And so the eggs hatch and they crawl to the tips of the larvae, crawl to the tips of the heather. And then the birds come along and ingest the worms again. So, and then the whole cycle carries on like that. So it, it's understanding what, you know, so the one theory was about, about parasites and the other theory which was the sort of Bob Moss and Watson theory, was that it was about kinship. So grouse are territorial, red grouse are territorial, and the males set up territory on a moor, and they'll defend that territory, and it's where you get these amazing calls and oh, everything in the, in the autumn <clears throat> and the spring. It's them defending and setting up these territories, and you need a territory to survive, basically. And then they pair up with another female. And there was this theory... Um, uh, by Adam and Watson that basically this was to do with um, kinship theory. So again, it's about recruitment is the fundamental thing. But if you, if the, as the population is increasing, then space on the moor is getting a bit limited because your territories are getting squeezed. Aggression levels start increasing because you've got to defend your territory. But you're more likely to allow your brother or your father or somebody who's related to you to have a territory next to you you're going to be a bit more tolerant if if you're related so again that allows this sort of population to build up on the moor to such a point that the young birds who are being born can't get in because there's no more space they either go off or die the old birds die and then that's the recruitment so that triggers it that way okay so for years there'd been these two separate theories and one lot of research had happened in England and one lot of research had happened in Scotland. And the population cycles are slightly different. So in, I think in Scotland, they're slightly longer, something like a 10-year cycle. Whereas in the north of England, for example, you'd have a much shorter cycle. And is that mainly climate-driven, do you think? That's what they thought it would be to do with climate. Um, so there was always this argument and debate about which of these theories was right. So, so how long ago was this? This would have been, oh gosh, 1999, I think I joined, 2000. Um, So I joined a project which was basically going to pull both of those theories together. We were going to test both of those elements. So um, we, we were, I was part of a bigger team, which was fantastic. So we were carrying out experiments both in the north of England and in the north of Scotland. And it was looking at the relationship between those two things. So the other thing about kinship theory and is that, or the kinship side of things, is that I mentioned about um, aggression levels. So if the aggression levels increase to such a point, um, testosterone is actually an immunosuppressant. So there was one theory that you could actually be um, pushing yourself beyond huh. your... So you're more susceptible you're to more parasites. You're more susceptible and... to parasites. So Amazing. we were testing all of these different hmm. theories. So yeah, it was very interesting. And what and where did, where did well, we end up? As, as that was ever, twenty, 20 years yeah, ago, yeah, as ever, I think there were more questions that obviously okay. came out as yeah. research always does. Um, we did find that link between the aggression levels and, and parasites. So that did exist. 
But whether it's to do with your immune system or whether it's just that if you're more aggressive, you're running around more okay. and your activity so like levels are higher. Fact. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, but I think the key thing out of all of that was just, I think having had the very sort of research side of things, it's how we link science and how we bring science to management. And what was interesting was that I think up until that point, the gamekeepers used to think traditionally go and shoot the old birds yeah, off they the did territories. Do that, yeah. 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 And they just sort of had an inkling that this worked, but they wouldn't have understood the mechanism but why it works. So suddenly you're able to bring that link and say, Yeah, that makes sense. You know, if you if you're taking out these old birds, you're allowing these young birds to come in, set up territories. So, you know, that that made sense. So it's linking that science and yeah, it's funny and how there's practical management. Yeah, there's sort of practical skill sets that are learned through observation, but not necessarily a full understanding of the science behind it. But yeah. it's been passed on from generation, and they know that it works quite often through trial and error. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's, it's incredible to find out what the the real reasons are behind that. Yeah. But yeah, and no, I'd forgotten about that because I, I don't know. Do guy do they still do that? I haven't. I'm not sure whether not that's sure. really common practice anymore. Yeah. So obviously there, you know, there's techniques about using medicated grit. Yeah. And the whole yeah. idea, I think, from a management point of view, is that I think it's every ambition of the Moors to have is, you know, the, to dampen that cycle as much as you can. You're never really going to stop that boom and bust, but it's just trying to find out ways. Is there a way that you can intervene to try and and dampen the cycle so you've got a much steadier kind of population and that's important for economics of and viability of the estates or why what's the concern with regard to that apart from obviously every gamekeeper wants to have a good day on the hill yeah i think it i think it just gives a much more sort of stable um stable long-term view in terms of the economics because obviously the boom and bust element is not helpful if you're trying to plan ahead and trying to plan shoots and things like that so I think it's just, you know, at what point do you start to to try and intervene in, in a natural process? In a natural I think. cycle, yeah. yeah. With any species and any kind of conservation work. So that is one of the great questions is how much do we intervene? And as I, I increasingly think some of that depends on how much we've affected it in the first place, uh, which across the planet is normally quite considerably yes. <laughs> um, for any kind of ecosystem or species. Because um, our, uh, and this is a, a debate that's, I suppose it's kind of kind of bleed over into the discussion back on deer, um, but how we, how our landscape here, particularly in Scotland where we're sitting, has changed over hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of years um, is very much at the fore of, of the discussion that we're having now as to what do we want it to look like in the future. Um, so the work that you're doing now on deer with the, the, what's the name of the report? I just called it the deer report, but what's it actually called? The the big report that just came out? Oh, the deer working group Deer report. working group report. Yeah. Um, it's very dense. Um, yeah. I've tried to consume it, but um, <laughs> it's, there's a lot of reading in there. Yeah. Uh, and potentially a lot of implications about how we, as, on the first time, manage deer, but I suppose it goes hand in hand, manage the landscape. You know, some of that's to do with... Uh, population control of deer and how we view that as an asset to society here but also what we want our landscape to look at so 
what, uh, where are we at with that? Because I think a lot of people are aware. That, I mean, it's been in the papers, it's been in the news. We've seen reports from different organisations come out. I'd be very surprised if most people have read the report. Yeah, <laughs> um, so, where do we sit with that? What's what are the the potential outcomes and discussions that are going to be having uh, being had in government? Yeah. In, in the future well now. I think crucially um, there's two reports now have hit the desk of the environment minister and one is the Dear Working Group report and that report was very much um, the remit of the group was to, to sort of take a step back um, they had a very broad remit but it was really to just look at where we where we're at and look at what are our options for the future and so as I say there the scope of the report was very broad um, and, you know, they've done a really thorough job of, of covering a lot of ground in the report. Um, I think it's 374 pages worth. That, um, that's why I was struggling to yeah, get to the end. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it took me two days to, <laughs> yeah. to go through in sort of fine detail. But essentially, um, there, is a, there is legislation that has been in place really for some time since 1959, which was... Um, the original kind of dear, um, dear legislation, and over the years that has has been amended and changed and updated. And I think it was a real opportunity to look at the legislation and say, is it fit for purpose? Is it allowing us to deliver what we want on the ground in terms of deer management? And much of the Deer Act is about trying to prevent damage by deer, so ensuring that we that those who Managed deer doing it in the right way, but that it's it's weighing up the cost and benefit of having of having deer. So, on the one hand, deer are a valuable resource to some, um, and there's no question about that. But on the other hand, deer can impact on a whole raft of other um, objectives, land management objectives, predominantly agriculture, woodland, and some of our natural heritage. So, designated sites and things. Along with other herbivores, of course, it's not just deer, but deer are, are one thing that can impact on that. So, this was an opportunity really to to look at the the legislation, and they've gone through in a lot of detail, looking at how the the legislation could be amended to take it forward to be fit for purpose for the next sort of however long. And I think that is coupled with the pressure, I guess, that's coming through the climate emergency, which was. Um, announced last year by the government where you know climate emergency affects everybody and the deer management sector is no different so you know particularly where landowners in Scotland have got you know a lot of our um, peatlands for example which are important climate change mitigation because of the carbon yeah, value carbon sink, yeah. yeah and this sort of um, you know really ambitious targets for expanding our woodland and for restoring our native woodland so it's all coming together to basically, the report is basically trying to put the tools in place that will enable that to happen. Um, so that, that's a very wide-ranging um, report and there's, there's a lot in there. There's a lot that on the face of it, for example, the closed seasons are always very emotive. So yeah. there's recommendations to change those basically to remove the close season for males completely and to shorten the close season for females. Is that across all the species? Um, yes at the moment. Yeah that's, that's how I, that was how I read it it yes. didn't specify species um, but so currently just to talk about close seasons for people who maybe don't fully understand what 
why do we have closed seasons right now? For so this is closed seasons restricting the harvesting of deer species. Yeah, normally designated by male and female, be having different seasons, but not always the case. Yeah, the female season is quite straightforward because that's about welfare, absolutely. And As in, they're carrying. Yes, their and you know the the closed season covers the period when, um, the, you know, females will have calves at foot, and it's not always possible to when you're managing deer to tell if there is then the calf might be hidden somewhere else. Yeah, so yeah. it covers that very vulnerable period when the calves are, are, are very young and um, feeding from their mother and they're dependent on their mother. So that's quite straightforward in terms of females. In terms of males, I think there is a debate to be had about the close seasons for males because originally I think they were set up really to protect the resource. Um, so... The hunting season is really from July through to October. Yeah, the for, for issue, yeah, the issue that we have is it's about temporal displacement of deer. So it's about those who gain the benefits of having deer during the the rut during the season. Those deer will then move off the ground and go somewhere else. Generally, where they're not wanted most of the time over winter. So. Whether it's extra grazing pressure on extra grazing pressure, and you know, if you're a farmer, that's maybe at odds with your objectives. If you're trying to grow trees, you know, woodlands shelter tends to be lowland areas. So, the main conflict that we have in deer management in Scotland is about that very thing. It's about deer temporarily being in places where they're just not wanted or desired, and the impacts that they can have there, and it's the ability to to be able to manage them in those circumstances when they are a shared resource. Yeah, I was going to say, because yeah. that's, that, I suppose that's that's tied to the the conversation about who owns them. Yeah. Because they are, and you can correct me on this, but you know, when they're on your ground, you're sort of temporarily owning them? No, or not? Or no, how does it work? Here? No. They're but you have the right to hunt them if, yeah, they're so on they're, your, they're, if you have the hunting rights on that ground. Yeah. So deer don't belong to anyone while they're alive. Um, when they're, that you can have the right to take them or to, to shoot them, and those rights usually come with land ownership. Although you can um, give those to other people through sporting leases or whatever. Um, but generally, yeah, they, they don't belong to. So anyone. does that mean they're a public resource? Um, gosh, I'm not sure. No, well, because if no, if no one really owns them, then they're an asset of the country. Then. Hmm. I don't know. I'm just I'm thinking. Yeah, out, no, I'm thinking I think, out loud yeah, here. I know, there would be some people be screaming at you. Yeah. You should know the answers. Um, so there would they be a resource in terms of public? So there's there's a lot of public interest involved in deer and deer management, and I think parts so of the public interest covers a whole raft of things about sustainable deer management. So you would say that um, there's a public interest in terms of all the environmental impacts that they can have, and their their place as a keystone species as yeah, part I mean, that, of the that's environment. why we're having yeah. this discussion about managing them in the public interest yeah, yeah. exactly um, the right to shoot them only sits with the person who owns the land um, out with that then they don't really belong to anybody um, and I think that might be slightly different to some other countries where they are public resource maybe yeah I mean sure I suppose it's got, different again if you put right, a fence around it yeah I think it's it's how we balance those needs moving forward and and how do we so we come back to the close season we've gone completely off tangent so the close season was really I think initially set up to protect that resource mm -hmm. so that um, 
So it wouldn't be like overexploited? Yeah, during yeah. the winter time or on other places. So it was only during that time of the, the rut when people wanted to come and stalk and shoot deer. Of course, there's winners and losers in that because as anybody who knows anything about the movement of deer, there are glens or estates in Scotland which are you know red, known as like red deer estates because that's where they move into for the rut. And there'll be others that primarily hold hinds, so they're as a sporting value because uh, uh, male red deer uh, command a higher rate than than stalking hinds. They're seeing more value on their property at certain times of year, and that's just that's just luck of the, luck of the draw, or based on knowledge if you know where they're where they're uh, going to spend their time during the run. Yeah, but the other element of the of the male season um, or the close season is is there a welfare argument? So the deer are coming out of the rut, they're really low ebb, they've lost a lot of their body weight and you know they're just looking for food and shelter. So there's always been that element of the debate about whether or not the close season for males should be there to protect them at that time of year when they, again they're probably they at low ebb. a bit of peace. Yeah. yeah. But essentially where we're at now is that there is um, the ability for someone who has agricultural land or, or woodland to be able to control them out of season under an authorisation that you would get from from Scottish Natural Heritage. You have to show that there's a burden that you have, uh, proof that you have to show that they're causing Yes, damage. that's right. So it's all about damage. So it's to prevent damage happening or or occurring. Um, so, the, the, so stags still can be shot out of season under licence and it still happens. And again, it's arguably, it's still a useful tool to be able to protect some of your of your woodlands or or whatever it is that you've got agricultural ground so it's about having the right tools in the right place and a level of legislation that that we're basically maximizing the value of deer in scotland and maximizing the resource but minimizing the cost of that resource and that's the key and that's a real challenge and the the biggest challenge that we face at the moment is how we do that in a meaningful way so I suppose that years ago, groups of landowners got together to create deer management groups. You know, and there's um, these go back decades. But now there's a much more formal role for those deer management groups because it recognising particularly, I mean, we're talking a lot about red deer here. Yeah. You see this yeah. roe deer, slightly different. But red deer, you know, that's that landscape scale approach that you need to be able to, to manage effectively a population as a whole for the very point that you've just made, that sometimes the deer will be on your ground and at other times they're not. So it's managing that population yeah, so collectively. It's a shared resource. Yeah, really. and it, you, you know, you're trying to manage it in a way that it's a win-win situation for everybody involved, that you're able to utilise that resource to the best of your ability, but, but equally you're, you're trying to ensure that that population is not damaging the very environment which they're part of. So it's a balancing act and that's really where now that's what my job is about, just trying to help people through that process. So bringing groups of people together and managing at that landscape scale. Hmm. And so does that mean, uh, because the, the papers, if you just to take the, the, the headlines from the newspapers in the last few weeks, it was, uh, I think there was probably the most emotive was, Scotland needs to slaughter half of its deer population or something like that. Do we need to be reducing the density of deer across Scotland? And is that for tree growth or, you know, what's the the primary outcome from that? So again, it comes back to um, the real emphasis now on our woodlands and our peatlands. 
and ensuring that that they can um, that we that we can uh, ensure that that happens that we can restore our peatlands make sure they're in good good order and make sure that we can expand our woodlands the argument the extreme argument is that things like deer fencing is very very costly and there's a lot of grant funding for deer fencing so why should the public be paying for deer fencing when we should just be reducing the deer population? The difficulty is, I think, we tend to pick up on a very broad brush, one-size-fits-all approach to deer management Scotland. So, you know, let's let's create all of this woodland, let's just reduce the deer population down, it's really straightforward, and, and that's just the end of it. When in fact, what we've been doing over, certainly over the last five 10 years is taking a much more nuanced approach to deer management. So we have 44 deer management groups, for example, across Scotland. Across Scotland. Mm-hmm. They cover 3.2 hect- million hectares of the uplands. So we have these groups already. They have deer management plans in place. And, and, it, and it's about trying to manage that population to deliver the best outcome from that local yeah. that local area rather than a broad sweeping statement a broad sweeping whole statement yeah. so i think what people are picking up on is that it's very easy to create the argument which is yeah if we just reduced our deer population then we could grow lots of trees everywhere and it would all be fine and i think the reality of that on the ground is that because of this temporal um distribution of deer at certain times very often you can have a very, very low density of deer, but if all those deer decide to use your woodland, which they will, yeah. um, you could have 10 deer in there and they're still going to have a significant impact. So it's this numbers thing that we talk about. People are obsessed about what national numbers of deer that we have. It is about impacts, but it's about trying to have a, a much more informed management in place understanding how deer move how they utilize the areas that are available to them how can we how can we manage deer at that level at that very localized level and local decision making rather than this broad brush so at the moment i think i know we're we should be moving away from it but i think we've got about nine to ten deer per square kilometer on average across that upland range normally people advise that you would need a density of deer within a woodland of four and below. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in, in order cases, to encourage regeneration. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes even less than that. Mm-hmm. So it's about it's about the practical reality. We all know the importance of wanting to create good habitats, resilient habitats that are going to help, you know, mitigate against climate changes that are ahead. Um, but we need to do it in a meaningful way and an informed way. And to a, to a degree, that is already happening. So within within these deer management groups, you know, I've been working over the last five years with a lot of groups to make sure that we've got these plans in place, that we're doing that thing about minimising the impacts and maximising the benefits for those local circumstances. And no one group is the same. And that's the key thing, you know. A group the West on the Coast West, is very, very different to the East very Coast. Very different yeah. to the East Coast, yeah. you know. And again, all of that's got to be taken into consideration in some of this long-term view of things, you know. Particularly when it comes to restoring woodlands, you know, that's a long-term game. Um, 
So where's the um, where are different interest groups going to butt heads with regard to to deer going forward now? You know, what are we seeing as the the, the stumbling blocks to move forward in a sort of progressive manner together where people are happy if that's ever possible <laughs> oh well <laughs> i think communities this is, and people are happy yeah i think this is the frustrating point that we're at and you know i've heard it discussed in other podcasts and other in other areas is it's this polarization of views and that's where we're at at the moment we're living so, in a very polar world we are with and, regard to all manner of things absolutely and it's this sort of you know you're in one camp or you're in the other and what tends to happen is people become very entrenched and a lot of the debate as you've just highlighted is played out over over the media over social media or anti-social media as the case <laughs> may be and i just don't think that that's helpful it's not i don't i think social media has a has a value and you know all the positive things it can bring about you know you can go on there and be really inspired but you can come away from social media just thinking oh my gosh you know are we ever going to get to the point where we can all sit around the table? And I think what I think is is needed is just much more opportunity to sit down in, I won't call them safe spaces, but in spaces where people can park their, maybe park their posturing and park the egos at the door and everybody sits around because at the end of the day, I think there's far more common ground that we have in the debate than, than not. Yeah. And I mean, we all want to see a diversity of species and thriving ecosystems absolutely. across the whole country that's yeah. accessible to people Yeah, where we can see value as a community and as landowners. I mean, yeah. it's not, you don't think it would be that hard. Well. <laughs> but it is. But it, doesn't, it, is. it doesn't have to be this all or nothing mm. approach. And I think, you know, particularly with the discussions about rewilding, you know, I think, there's a lot of value in the discussions to be had. I think what um, maybe puts people off is just, it is this all or nothing approach. When in fact, you know, I, I like to think of it as this shades of green, that we, we're all on that scale at some point. You know, we're all doing our bit. And, uh, you know, you may be at this end of the scale or you may be at that extreme scale, end of the scale, but I think everybody's making a contribution, even as it stands right now. You know, a lot of the estates I'm working with through the deer management groups are planting trees, are restoring bogs, yeah, are doing all of these yeah. things. And we may not be able to call it rewilding, mm -hmm. but there's still huge value in what they're doing and on that scale that is all contributing. So it's about identifying that common ground and just we've got far more to, to lose by not talking to one another and by not engaging, I think. But it's creating that environment to allow that to happen. You know, and it tends to be situations where it's much more face-to-face -face and then meetings where you've got the opportunity to challenge without, as I say, necessarily being in your extreme position. Mm. Do you think yeah. there's, um, do you think one of the sort of barriers to having a, a pragmatic discussion about um, deer in a kind of public for forum is the the sort of historical status of it? You know, of it being sort of the landowner who's owns the deer and it's it's i know like in sky for example this is quite a a, a good example 
in Sky, a lot of the, the local mentality of deer grazing on the crofts is you're stealing my grass because they're your deer, as in like the estate's deer or wherever they've come from. So come and do something about it because you're basically taking from me. Uh, and the sort of historic feudal view of you know how we manage our assets and who they belong to. Because we don't really... Okay, we have Forestry Commission, which is a... Um, we can publicly access it. We have to jump through a few loopholes to do it, but we publicly access it as a resource for harvesting deer. But most of it in this country is privately owned. Yeah, that's right. But I think even that is changing all the time. So again, when I probably through my career got involved 15 years ago, you know, when I first joined the Deer Commission and had the opportunities to go out to these groups, even maybe as far back as then, it was very much you know, landowners coming to the table who had similar objectives and everybody wanted the same thing. And that was just to have as many stags as possible to shoot. And that was, that was the sum total of the discussion. That was as far as they were That saying. was as far as it would go. And that's fine. But at, gradually over time, I think what you're seeing now is a far more diverse mosaic of different land ownership coming in so people buying land so for example a lot of NGOs now own land in Scotland um, forestry um, forest for Scotland whatever their new name is um, and you know even private landowners with with very strong conservation yeah we see drive. that increasingly yeah. absolutely yeah. so now when you go to a deer management group meeting very often there is a whole mixture of different land management objectives all sitting side by side and again that's where the challenge is so it's about it's about trying to enable everyone to have their cake and eat it how how can we manage this shared population to allow everybody to deliver their objectives within the room and that's the challenge and it's not easy but essentially again that's what I that's try to job. help that's my day job <laughs> that's what I try and do and you know it's about putting all the pieces of the of the jigsaw puzzle together mm. it's about getting local knowledge you know information absolutely is power in these situations the more information that you can bring to the table um because there's always got to be a solution you know there's always got to be a solution and the more that you work through things and are able to talk um and come up possibly even as we move on through time with novel solutions to things as well you know i think this is where i feel personally quite torn in a sense because I have that deep-seated sort of very traditional cultural association because of my childhood but equally I can see that things are changing and I think that we've got to try and adapt we've got to bring new ideas to the table we've got to work together to to move forward and change isn't easy I get that you know but it's it's trying to crystal ball gaze slightly and say well how are we going to do all of this as I say, in a win-win situation. Mm, the the knee-jerk reaction from the uh, you know, those people sitting firmly in the, you know, I'm a traditional stalker, deer manager camp, has been, as I hear it being fed to me, has been very negative to the reports coming out. It's like, well, they're here to wipe out all our deer and we've been managing them for years and years and we've been doing a great job. What And I think the truth is it kind of, which is kind of what you're saying, it kind of sits somewhere in the middle there. I don't think... I don't think anyone's saying that no one's done a great job in the past and there's been you know, hundreds of years of hard graft and understanding to manage the populations to where they are now. And I don't think that those, that kind of very um, kind of aggressive knee-jerk reaction is necessarily useful. And I say that as someone who hunts and is friends with you know, people who have had this reaction to Yeah, it. 
I think there's it's just about being honest on both sides of the argument as well and saying, are there areas where we maybe do have too many deer? Of course there are. That's not about drastic reductions in the population. That's about managing them and tweaking the populations. And again, that's some of the things that I explore with the groups that I work with. You know, there's a natural assumption that it has to be as say this all or nothing we have yeah, to have lots yeah. of deer or none because we've seen that and maybe this is the reason people are concerned because we have seen this with um, some landowners who have bought places that are very much on the rewilding camp where largely speaking the deer have been wiped out in these areas so I wonder if that is that sort of plays to the concern of the sort of those people with the more sort of traditional view of deer management is that that's what it could look like is this landscape where there's no deer in it at all anymore yeah but equally, you know, where where that's happened and where you're starting to see the habitat bouncing back, it's very easy to sit on the other side of the fence and look over the fence and say, oh, you're doing that. But I think equally there was possibly an opportunity when that's happening is for landowners to look at what they're doing themselves. You know, how are they improving their land? How are they improving their habitats? At the end of the day, if you've got someone across the fence from you who's creating, who's reduced the deer population and is creating this amazing habitat, it's a no-brainer where the deer are going to want to go. <laughs> so, you know, I think I've always encouraged people to say, well, okay, you can be critical of that, but, but equally there's an opportunity to look at what you're doing and saying, if I want to maintain deer in the future, if I want to carry on hunting in the same way, I maybe need to look to to, to, you know, seeing what I can do to make sure that what I'm creating is a fantastic place for deer to want to be. And it's not necessarily about numbers. It's, you know, creating really good quality deer that are in tune with their habitat. You don't need hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hinds if all you want to produce is a few really good stags. In fact, quite the contrary. So it's getting away from that mentality also that you can have less and and better quality so the little bit of that that we've got to to sort of consider in terms of taking a look at what we've actually got but again this is where it comes down to these deer management groups because it's about recognizing what you've got and fine-tuning fine-tuning what you have and that's very very much happening at at that landscape scale level and I think there's a huge value in that and that's one of the things that's maybe not clear from the, the deer working group tends to sort of downplay the value of these these existing deer management groups that we've got. It's not to say that other models can't work and we possibly have to look to other models, particularly managing a species like roe deer, which mm -hmm. is an entirely different species yeah. altogether. Um, Although you do find them in the uplands far more low ground specific. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there, there are other forums coming together, which are maybe not a traditional deer management group in that sense. And that's that's great. That's That's perfectly fine. But equally, I don't think that we should be so quick to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of some of these upland deer management groups, which, you know, really have progressed in terms of, as I said to you before, perhaps in in t 10 years, 15 years ago, the sum total of the meetings was, yeah, how many stags did you shoot? Yeah, it was brilliant. It was a great season. Fantastic. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, if, dare I say, if the Forestry Commission were there and been shooting a few more deer... Then it was just sort of a two-hour interrogation of mm. of the Forestry Commission. And were you shooting all my deer? Why are you shooting all my deer? Yeah. And I think we have part that we've moved on so far from that. Now, you know, we we have these really 
broad encompassing discussions at their management group meetings now because of the range of public interest. So we're talking about socioeconomics, we're talking about um, local communities, we're talking about their vehicle collisions, their health, their welfare, all of these things. Mm. So it's much How more do you, broad ranging. Uh, what is the the mechanism for paying for the shift in land use change then? Because as we said, like m- mostly it's it's privately owned. So, I mean, I think it's, it's fairly public knowledge that, you know, a lot of estates in Scotland don't actually make a profit. Um, so they are, they exist because the people who own them enjoy them in, in some manner. Um, that's particularly true of, you know, grouse, grouse estates, which have huge overheads. So if we are to shift the type of land use be that you know more forest less deer or or uh, less grouse more forest or whatever that combination might be is how does that get paid for like what are the economics behind that because there are lots of grants around you know government grants but i've always been of the opinion that although um, government incentives through subsidies and grants is a great way to push things in the direction that we as a society want to go. They don't always get it right, and that has been historically proved to correct uh, a number of times. Um, but in the long term, it still has to pay its own way. So how do we balance the, like, that economics? Or do you think that's more about a shift in mindset for private landowners as to what they want to see in this country? I think that will be. I think it's just going to be a natural evolution of the people who, what is the motivation in the future for you to own a piece of of land in Scotland, whether that's as a community group, you know, not, let's not forget that you know there's more opportunities being given to communities to own own land and manage it. Um, but I think it will just naturally evolve, and this comes down to this balance of the, about the public interest. So, if we have these amazing peatlands and we want them restored, is it right that the, the, the taxpayers pay for that? You know, that there's grants available, which right now they which, which is the case is, a, is the yeah. case. Um, so yes, there's. there's it, swings in terms of say the public interest you know is it is it right that the taxpayers should pay for some of this in terms of woodland expansion and new woodlands and all of these things that we you know we've got very very ambitious woodland targets to meet um but equally you know there's still rural communities to support mm-hmm. and people still need jobs people still need jobs arguably will those jobs change over time is that again just a natural evolution and i say that in a very kind of almost nonchalant way, but knowing that perhaps what's at risk is that very deep cultural heritage of the the kind of life's, <laughs> I guess, childhood that, that we yeah, had, yeah. you know? So um, I think change is inevitable. And I, and I think all the time new things are coming to the fore. So for example, you know, I, I, I'd something that I, I'd need to learn more about, but sort of natural capital, value of natural capital and some of this carbon accounting and carbon offsetting if you've got a peatland is that where the value of your estate suddenly is instead of maybe more traditionally your estate would have been valued on the number of stags that you shot per year I can see a situation coming where you know you're starting to use the assets that you have and just in a different way so a lot of estates have you know um, looked at renewable energy for example yeah, we see that it's all the time. One, yeah. Hydro schemes and things like that. So, yeah, it's just, and it's, I suppose it will just be a, an evolving system as estates come on the market. It's interesting to see who are the types of people who are buying estates now, what their motivation is. Um, th- there's a lot of inward investment coming in th- 
through state ownership, um, again, arguably supporting really fragile rural communities. Um, so there's always this debate about, you know, land, big landowner bad, <laughs> small community yeah. groups good. Yeah. Um, again, the polarisation of these views, but is there is there room to have both where you've, you know, and that's always got to be, I think there was a d- debate in the land reform um, issue to do with the size of a state that you, should, that you should be allowed to have. Yeah. And setting limits on that. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think that to have, and this goes back to what you were saying earlier, to have a a broad sweeping, um, a hard line in the uh, in the sand drawn on that is kind of ridiculous because the barren west north coast of Scotland, yeah. you're going to have much bigger areas with much less in it than you're going to have in a very fertile part of the east coast. Yeah. So to just say, you know, this is this is the numbers. I think a little bit arbitrary. Yeah. yeah. But there's no doubt climate change is going to really, um, I think, possibly put more pressure on on the land that we've got. Yeah. And I think there's some, you know, there's going to be some interesting discussions to be had over that in terms of how best do we use that land? Is that a national scale? Is that a regional scale? You know, I think they're looking at the moment to develop regional plans about land use. So again, where did deer fit into that? Because mm. um, so. it was actually mentioned in, in the report about um, the shifting and, and warming climate and how our winters have changed and the reduction in winter mortality of calves. So that's going to mean that our population growth is going to be faster than it has been historically. Yeah, and I think, you know, nature will respond in its in its own way. We're always going to have to manage deer. I don't, I don't think we'll, well ever we have get no predators, to, do we? Well, exactly. Yeah. We're always going to have to be in that managing role, and particularly as we're expanding woodland. If that's where we're heading, then, you know, managing deer in that environment is ultimately harder, I guess. Yeah, More is, intensive, yeah. just a different skill set. Um, but again, there are opportunities in there. And I think that's what we've always got to see is where are the opportunities? So we are maybe trying to cling on to very traditional way of of even stalking for example is there just going to be a natural evolution more to as i say less is more so better quality animals that you maybe have to hike two days to find and having a wilderness experience as part of it these are all things that we're probably going to have to consider at some point and there'll be those who embrace it and move forward and there'll be those understandably for whom that's a sort of an anathema. So. But there's maybe a place for both. Yeah, yeah. There's maybe a place for both. Yeah. And yeah, I think undoubtedly managing any kind of um, animal population within an area of increased cover is going to be more difficult because that seems pretty obvious. Um, and that's something we have to consider too, which I know historically with the planting of forests for timber harvesting maybe wasn't necessarily thought about as how do we manage populations of deer within these forests and it has been very difficult because it just wasn't really thought of so when we are restructuring these regenerations of forests it is doing it in a manner that also allows us to manage the ground uh, the land in an an efficient manner yeah well that's what you know i do a bit of work down in in cowl and um exactly that situation has happened at the point they were planting trees the first time around probably in the 70s then there were no red deer there so you could plant trees quite happily without fences and and now sort of all these years on they're now at the point of restructuring and saying oh my gosh we've got this huge sort of um 
woodland population that to actually try and get a handle on is, is going to take a, a collaborative approach. Everybody's going to have to be in it together to do this. The issue there is that, again, to do with fragmentation of land, there's something like over 120 different land ownerships within this relatively oh, wow. small area. So how do you coordinate that? How do you manage that? So we're going to have to look at, at novel ways of, of tackling that and, and learning lessons absolutely for the future. Yeah, and there's lessons we can learn from our friends and neighbours because in Europe, where they have much uh, much greater forest cover than we have, they uh, manage their populations of not not just deer but boar as well through different mechanisms. So I know um, one estate in particular where I don't actually know the size of it, but it's a it's a fair size of estate, you know, many thousands of acres, and they hunt it twice a year, and they do it through driving the animals. So for two days of the year, it is there's definitely an elevated level of stress for the animals because you're pushing them through forests with beaters to guns that are standing in high seats. But the rest of the year, they're completely left alone to do what they want. But they're shooting a couple of hundred animals in those two days. And that is the only way that you will ever manage that population uh, in any kind of effective way in that kind of forest cover. Because to do it walk and stalk, you're just never going to be able to do it. And if you consider the actual animal welfare aspect of it, you'd be doing that every day of the year to not even get close to the same numbers. And you would be pushing deer and bumping deer and just being in the environment and so causing stress. So uh, you know, maybe that's something that we'll have to consider in the future. And we, we can ask yeah. our, our German and Austrian yeah. and French neighbors, you know, how they do it so yeah. that we don't have to try and learn from the beginning. Yeah. And I think it's just having all the tools in the toolbox. It doesn't mean you have to use them all but it's having and developing a good suite of tools to be able to do that, to do it effectively and always with welfare at, at the heart of at it. At the heart of it, yeah. yeah absolutely. To, to stop talking about deer for a moment, uh, <laughs> because um, there was a few things about your background that I didn't know and I wasn't expecting when you sent me a few things through an email. You spent some time in Africa as well. Yeah, in um, Kenya, in particular, yeah. I am, as you probably well know, it is uh, a place and a continent that is very close to my heart, and I spent a lot of time there. So I'm fascinated to hear what you were doing there, and when was this? And it was, um, it was when I was, I, I was still working. So I basically persuaded um, my boss to to give me all my leave at one go, and I had a couple of friends who were working out um, with the Northern Rangelands Trust and on Lewa um, Conservancy, and I wanted to go out and visit them because I'd always wanted to go to Africa, but I also knew that I just didn't want to go for a jolly. I wanted to have a purpose if I could and just use any of the skills I had to try and to make a contribution. So I got in touch with um, the research scientist for NRT, um, someone called Juliet King, who's amazing. And um, I just said, look, I just wondered if there's anything that you know I can usefully bring to the table. And I can't remember, we saw lots of toing and froing, but one of the things that she was really interested in was that they were working? So Northern Rangelands Trust is is an umbrella organisation, and it basically helps support um, community conservation. So um, building the infrastructure and the governance systems to allow local communities to manage their wildlife and manage the wildlife resource, and it also encourages neighbouring conservancies also 
to get together. So there's, I think there's something like 38 different conservancies covering over 4 million hectares now. And it allows these wildlife corridors to build up and, you know, creates a bit more stability. There's lots of different ethnic groups. So it really is a mechanism um, to, to build those structures. Part of that is that each conservancy has um, a, a sort of paid workforce in, in rangers who go out and they patrol the conservancy and, you know, carry out an anti-poaching function, a security function for the, the conservancy. And they also carry out monitoring of the wildlife, so doing surveys, frequent surveys and things like that. And one of the things that Juliet was interested in was um, providing a sort of a manual for these rangers to help support that whole thing. Okay. So I'd explained to her what I'd been working on with the best practice guidance ah. um, series and said, I think I have something that you know we could possibly bring because you have to bear in mind that many of the rangers are illiterate mm -hmm. and it's very much about... The education levels. Yes, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it's working with that, um, you know, and that's some of the benefits that come from that is that, you know, schools and, other, and everything to help with education, but essentially developing these guides that would help. So very, um, using lots of diagrams and, and, and pictures and making it very simple to use. So I went out, um, I can't remember, first um, 2010, I think, and spent... A um, couple of weeks out there just helping her set up the project, sort of putting the, the kind of skeleton together and, and setting up the project was ready to go. And they had someone who was going to take that on and develop it through. And so I had an, an amazing time out there. I was, was working just see, at that point for three or four weeks. Um, I came back, did my day job, and then I had a real hunkering to go back, as you do, because it yeah, just gets under your skin yeah. completely. Um, so I, I contacted Juliet again and said, you know, is there anything else that I could come and help with? I'm desperate to come back. <laughs> and in the same in the same way, I managed to take all my leave, probably in a bit more, and went out for a bit longer this time. And she said, well, actually, that project that you set up, we, we didn't quite get it finished. And it would be great just to, to finish it, get it done. So I took I can't remember, six weeks, two months, and went, went out and just worked with Juliet flat out to develop the guys. But what was brilliant was just being able to take that kind of ethos about developing something for something with 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 the rangers, you know. So we were going out to the conservancies and sitting down, you know, in a hut, just spending the day going through some of the guides. It's been very saying, empowering for local communities to be involved <clears throat> at that level. Yeah. And, you know, just such an amazing opportunity and just that on the ground working. And I also got to work with an amazing woman called Fran Root who they were also developing a database. So this database means that, and in the same way as, you know, come back to it here, is you can gather lots of information, but unless you know what to do with it, it's absolutely meaningless. So these rangers were going out, collecting all this was and was of data and bringing it back, but they, they couldn't actually do anything with it. So um, Fran had developed this um, database, which meant that the rangers could come back to, to their base it was very, very simple interface, could upload those data and press of a button and um, some magic would happen over there. And, you know, I would come a map or a very simple graph to show, you know, where the poaching incidents were, where, um, you know, where there'd been security incidents, you know, they might have population of some you know, wild dogs up in this area. And I think 
the value of being able just to present in that way is suddenly massively meaningful. So I say numbers don't really mean anything until you can map and see. Yeah, it's on not the collecting data just for the sake of collecting data. Yeah. You're actually outputting it in a way that can be acted upon. Yeah, and it, you get an instant feedback from that. It doesn't have to go off to somebody else to come back four months later with a map. So that was where the real value was in just getting that instant feedback. So you value those data, and and it was amazing to see you know different conservancies at different levels of their development. Um, and it's just, it's a fantastic organization. And, and ex that still exists still today? Still exists today, absolutely. And, you know, they're expanding all the time. They've now got marine conservancies where they're setting up a similar system where people are going out and, and monitoring um, different fish and, and things in the in the marine environment. So it's a, it's a great system. And I think at first, possibly the very sort of sniffy side of the research community said, well, it's not proper science, is it? <laughs> But I yeah, think gradually over time... Yeah, that's changed. Yeah, absolutely. And they're seeing a real value in it now because you've got these trends over time and and and, and the quality of the data is improving all the time. And mm, That's good. Because there is this... Um, I mean, c citizen science around the world is so important and increasingly important yeah. um, to, to harness that and like respect it in a way. And I think you're right. Like in the early days of that, it certainly seemed the sort of the more hardcore scientists who had done their time, as it were. Yeah didn't really want to engage in that but I think that is shifting now yeah so that this the system is is incredible and you know in the same way I see parallels with here so I see parallels with you know when I do a training course for example and you know certainly some very traditional stalkers taking them out the hill and showing them bits of heather and just explaining that it's actually quite straightforward yeah. they'll get it yeah. understand? I mean it's something they're not it's, it's it's almost innate it's almost instinctive they're out there doing that every day yeah. you're looking at the ground but it's just a way of perhaps more formalize, uh, formalizing it um, but again the value of that when you're able to produce a map so that you know, they instinctively know what those results mean. So you've got higher impacts over here. Well, that's because, you know, that's the quarry where all the hinds hang out. And, yeah. and so it's just being able to present it in such a way that's meaningful and allowing you then to, again, bring it back, use that in your management. And whether it's in Africa where, so the examples would be if the rangers were out and had reports of, you know, wild dogs denning in an area, they were able to feed that back to the community and say, look, there's no point in taking your livestock in that area for a little while because there's uh, going to be wildlife conflict. Okay. You know, steer away from there just from here to here. And that, you know, and it's about managing those conflicts because they exist, you know, and oh, yeah. and again, the pressure on the land is, is only going to increase those, those wildlife conflicts. So they were able to see tangible benefits on the ground yeah, to conservation work. Yeah. That's fantastic. And also just, even just things like being able to map where their patrol effort was. And then if there was a poaching incident in a certain area, you're able then to target, you know, you can start to match up the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. Say, okay, this is an area we've got to start targeting. We've been targeting over here, but this is where we've got to start going. Hmm. So, Fantastic. So when, when are you going back again? That's the question. Oh, just, yeah, Has it been a while since you've been back? It is a while, yeah. yeah you um, must be due a visit then. I definitely. Um, but I, I really want to take the boys, you know, I think it's just seeing it through somebody else's eyes and introducing, yeah. you know, a younger generation to that. And, you know, for me, I think at every point, we all, we all like, in some respects, to sit in our comfort zone. But being pushed out of your comfort zone, you realise just, you know, how valuable that is in your own personal development you know and even 
in in Kenya going out and when we were doing some of the training courses we were out and it was just myself and and a driver and and um the trainer and out into the absolute wilds you know with just your little British army tent <laughs> now this is <laughs> for someone like me was oh my gosh uh, but you know it's that you don't have that sense of fear of of just suddenly you're not top of the food chain no, anymore. No, we don't have that here. And yeah. and just all the emotions that that brings and the, the feelings of that, just sort of being slightly on edge all, the whole time. And that I guess there's something that makes you feel very alive about it. Yeah, which uh, is it's kind of a hard thing to explain. But I always tell everybody. Um, and there's a few people that I've kind of taken to different countries in Africa for the first time over the years so I, I warn you one thing that if you go yeah. you're going to have a problem probably for the rest of your life and you're going to be continually trying to work out ways to get back yes, there definitely. <laughs> because it just seems to it just seems to bite you in a way oh absolutely it just gets under your skin but again I think there's just valuable lessons from that I remember you know thinking the very very first time I was actually on a on a, an organized safari trip was the first time I went out um a couple of years before I was actually going out working and you know, that first time that you see a zebra, you're like, my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> and, and then, you know, and you, and you find yourself horrified because by the end of the safari, you're saying, oh, yeah, it's just another it's zebra. just another zebra, yeah. And then you catch yourself and you think, yeah, but have you really looked at that animal? Have you really studied that animal in detail? You know, and it really sticks with me. I guess that was my zebra stripes moment was like, if someone actually just put a piece of paper in front of me right now, could I actually draw a zebra with all the stripes. Do they go up and down? Yeah. You know? Which species? So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um yeah, for me I think there's always that value in looking at things in a in a really close, detailed way and taking it all in rather than just the big things. Yeah. It takes time to do that well. though. That the sort of the a sweeping safari tour for a day yeah. through Kruger doesn't. I mean, you just got you just get hit with everything. A whole bunch of species that you've never really seen before in your life. You don't know yeah. what they're called. You need a lot of time on the ground to really start to understand the place. Yeah, and that's the value. You know, I think some of the most interesting times Kenya was going out with with the rangers mm. out on patrol and who live it and breathe it every day. Absolutely, and it's the little it's the little seed pod that they pick up, and that's got a massive relevance to the, the ecology of the system. Mm. And it's the little things that. You know, it's very easy to go and just want the big five and yeah, be dazzled it, by it. But exactly. It's understanding all the little pieces of the of the puzzle. Yeah. The puzzle. Now, um, just to, as a to as we get towards wrapping this up, you had something to do with an endangered species of crow, and I'm fascinated <laughs> to understand the story. So do tell. Uh, um, when I was doing my PhD, I had an opportunity to go out and help out on a on a project. Yeah, looking at endangered species of crow. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> I know people just go, what? Like <laughs> yeah. yeah okay. So it was the Marianas crow and um, found in this chain of islands called Marianas Islands, which are in the middle of the Pacific. Okay. Now, I think if anyone is listening from the States, they'll maybe know, know Guam is mm -hmm. one of the bigger islands because I think it's a. We have an like American. most of our listeners are in the States. Oh, so, yeah. So yeah. That, it's a, I think it's a US military. Okay. Place, yeah, it's I think it's, I've it's heard a of Guam, series yeah. of, of those little islands. So I had a chance to go out and. They'd been basically trying to understand that I think um, this is an endangered species. It was almost extinct on Guam and there was a reasonably healthy but declining population on this tiny island called Rota. So we went out to have a look at that and try to understand what might be the cause of this declining population. Do they, they only exist there in this chain of islands? Yes. Okay. 
And um, there was lots of different um, possibilities, whether it was they've got rats on the island, for example. So was it, was it predation through rats? Was it sort of interspecies competition with another bird called a drongo? So we were looking at all of these different things. And while I was out there, I can't even remember how the conversation came up, but through my contacts in New Zealand, I'd met this amazing man called Bruce Banwell. Sadly, he's he's passed, but he was a great deer taxonomist and he's written all these books about the different species of deer and all over the world. It's a real authority on that. And I think I maybe contacted him to say, look, I'm going out here. I think there might be a species of deer here, but nobody seems to know if this deer still exists. There's some documentation. So I was asking him about it. He said, well, we don't know. There's early documentation about it, but we, we nobody's been there who's that interested in deer to be able to verify so he said if you could find out if it still exists that would be awesome so um yeah just through talking to local hunters um they managed to sort of show me um some antlers and skulls that they had there was a captive tiny captive population which I was able to get a few photographs of but um interestingly while we were doing all the work in the forest we put up some camera traps where I thought we might see and we we got some pictures of some so, wild so what is it what kind of deer is it? A samber deer. It's a samber. Mariana okay. samber, yeah. Okay. And is this um, specific to those islands? Because there is samber found in other places. Yeah, no, this is Mariana samber. Okay, this yeah, is so, only found there. Yeah, so it was incredible to be able to verify that this species wow. still existed. So it was huh. really exciting. And apart from the fact that it's this amazing tropical island, it was huh. a phenomenal experience. Yeah, island island ecology is something I just started to read about uh, recently. It's, it's fascinating because you have this sort of this micro system that exists in what is or can be a very um, you know fragile setting that we can impact and have there's loads of rats is a great example yeah. where we've accidentally introduced rats through boats to islands whether that be on the west coast of Scotland or yes. in other parts of the world can be completely devastating absolutely to small island communities I mean not even small island communities New Zealand is a great example yes exactly yeah, yeah. So no, that was a that was just an amazing opportunity just to That's see a completely fantastic. different How long ecosystem. You there for? Again, it was about two months. Oh really? So, so yeah. it was quite a while. Yeah, and it it there is a tendency to want to glamorize, you know, doing research on a tropical yeah, island. Yeah. The reality was it was sort of I don't know humidity and yeah. going into the forest and sweating all the time, setting rat traps and oh, <laughs> yeah. So what was the butter. what was the outcome for the crow? I think I think the key thing was. It, don't think it was again any definitive answer. We we were worried that there was possibly brown tree snakes there, so we didn't see any evidence of these tree snakes. So that was a relief. And I think interestingly, um, where there were good populations was also where there was actually good rat populations. So, so it, they were eating it wasn't, rats. Well, I don't know. So whether the habitat are they like was, carrion crows? Um, oh gosh, no, that was such a long time ago. I can't remember, but whether or not there was something to do with the habitat type that they were both oh, okay. getting something yeah. from the habitat that was causing them both to kind of mm. thrive. Um, so I'm not sure if they ever got to the bottom of actually what happened, but yeah. But they were there and you found deer. And we found deer. That's, That's awesome. amazing. Yeah. Lindsay, it's been a fascinating discussion today. I've thoroughly enjoyed being able to dig into, you know, particularly the deer in Scotland debate, because it has been in the papers. People are talking about it. I think we are going to see... Uh, the way that we, well, we're most definitely going to see the way that we manage our landscape and everything within it, particularly deer as the biggest mammals that we have, change and shift over time. Uh, and it's, 
I just hope that, as you were saying earlier, we can have calmer discussions where we get positive outcomes for the people who share the landscape and the wildlife that lives within it. And that's not just true in Scotland. That goes around the world as well. Um, but you, I think, to some extent, need to leave some of the egos and emotions at the door. And that's hard. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Mm. So well, thanks for your time to today. Say, you know, thank you for the opportunity. And that's it for now. Stay safe out there and join us in two weeks' time.